As February dies and the first autumnal mists spread their tendrils over the silent sea, we turn our gaze to the aridity of the Martian desert where the air is cold, the lizards are eloquent, and the bisexuals are disasters. And bastards. And we are coming for you. Welcome to Race to Finish. I'm Carrick. And I'm David. <laughs> and today we're discussing Red Dawn. Written by Justin Richards, directed by Gary Russell, sound designed by Alastair Locke, music by Russell Stone, and we've already covered who Justin Richards is in Whispers Whispers of Terror, so that's going to make this episode a lot shorter already. Yes, this is a Fifth Doctor and Perry story. Which is a little interesting, because uh, Five is who Perry is going to be with for most of the next hundred odd releases that feature her. It's kind of odd, given there was... Something of a fandom consensus of that planet of fire led straight into caves of Androzani. Idea being it adds to the Doctor's sacrifice in Androzani as he's doing it for a woman he barely knows. Now, me personally, I don't think it actually detracts from that. I'm fine with her having way more adventures with Five, as she and him already seem to have a pretty set dynamic in those early Androzani scenes. I personally feel that the intention was that that was that there were no adventures set between them. I mean, Perry's literally wearing the same clothes as she was at the end of Planet of the Fire. And I do personally think it detracts a bit. But, I mean, there's a lot of them, and we're going to be talking about them, so I may as well make peace with it. Yeah, uh, this story also reintroduces the Ice Warriors. Yes. The second story in a row to reintroduce a recurring race. Yes. Now, apparently the idea with this story was to accurately portray what a manned NASA mission to Mars would look like. And how successful were they? I do not know, and I'm going to be honest, I don't care. Like, realism in science fiction is something I struggle to care about on the best of days. With Doctor Who, I I basically throw it out the window. Uh, Some casting notes, because the cast in this is actually fairly noteworthy. Uh, Robert Jezik is in this. He had a minor role in Battlefield, but he's going to be a bit more prominent later on when we cover the Holy Terror, because all hail the big talking bird. Uh, If you don't get that reference, you will. Uh, Georgia Tennant, at this point Georgia Moffat, is here too. She was really young in this. Uh, This was like a decade before The Doctor's Daughter. And... And now, the most notable casting decision in this, well, to me, is the villain is played by Stephen Fuel, making this the second Justin Richards script in a row to have a villain voiced by a regular from Bernie Summerfield. Now, I find this incredibly funny because Jason Bloody Kane, the character he plays in Bernie Summerfield, is the biggest disaster bisexual in the universe. And in this, he basically plays an annoying rich bastard. <laughs> I'm just going to say, uh, I love you, Stephen, but um, if it's a choice between villain performances, him or Lisa Bowman, I will take Lisa Bowman. Anyway, the character he plays in this is Paul Bloody Webster. Or, although I should probably refer to him throughout this as just bastard Stephen Fuel. <laughs> I mean, you may as well. I've already forgotten his name and you just said it. This, this release is again... Really fucking boring. <laughs> it gets better, I promise. The Rain Range is pretty good at these early years, but these two are really bad. 
I mean, the score is good. It's like we had the Fearmonger and the Marion Conspiracy both knocking it out of the park. Now we have the balance. <sighs> yes. Uh, oh, another weird casting note. Uh, Matthew Brenner, I think that's his name. I, I may, I'm probably talking completely, someone else completely, but the guy who played Vistine Crane in Whispers of Terror, uh, he's in this too, and he's playing the lead Ice Warrior. I, I think it's a mostly good performance. He also played an Ice Warrior in the Bernie Summerfield audio, The Dance of the Dead, which you should be listening to instead of this. Yeah. Yes, it is so much better. And it's not even like one of the best Bernie Summerfields. It's just really much better than this. Anyway, the non-spoilery stuff. Uh, You said it. This is really fucking boring. I... I honestly prefer this to the genocide machine because it's half an hour shorter. Oh yeah, fair enough. In that respect, I can understand liking this this one. I mean, it could easily have another half hour lopped off it too. And it would probably elevate this to about a 6 or 7 out of 10. As it is, I'd rate it at like a three or a four. Also, the production's pretty solid. Like, the scores good. The performances are mostly pretty tight. After the some of the odder acting moments and pacing in um, The Genocide Machine, this is actually a pretty big step up in most other ways. It doesn't feel like it, I have to say. It's... I don't even know what to talk about. I mean, I, I, like, we talked a little bit before a few days ago about the Ice Warriors, and you have a few notes about that. But besides that, there's just nothing to talk about. There's stuff, shit happens. But I honestly couldn't be asked to remember, and I did read a synopsis, a very thorough synopsis of the story after the fact, just yesterday, to prep myself for this. And it was still so boring, I can't remember it. (laughs) Well, the plot of the story is basically... Humans arrive on Mars, spar with the Ice Warriors for a bit, they come to an agreement, murder Stephen Fuel, and leave. Uh, that's pretty much it. There's also a girl who's, like, part Martian or something. I, I, I honestly didn't follow that. I feel like we should have saved this for the spoilers, but I, I don't think that matters with this. I mean, like, I understand we're committed to this format, but I honestly don't care about it when it comes to this. It's so bad. <laughs> don't listen to this. I'm gonna... Like, this is the shortest main range so far, so, I mean, I guess if you like conciseness, you could listen to it. Yeah. But, I don't know, if you want something concise, listen to... How do you pronounce it? Um, Scherzo? Like, what, I think it's like, Sch- Scherzo. I was in a voice call with a, with a fellow Doctor Who fan, and I said, like, Scherzo or something like that, and they corrected me, but I can't remember what they corrected me to, so... Anyway, but if you want something that's um, relatively short for a main range, then just listen to that because it's good. Like it, it's weird and a bit disturbing, but it's good. <laughs> it's also pretty pretty like storyline heavy, but you'll pick it up quickly enough, I think. We're spending so much of this episode just telling people to listen to other things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that should be telling. We didn't. We haven't done that with any other release so far. I mean, I kind of did it with, like, telling people to listen to the apocalypse element and the genocide machine, but that was, like, once. Yeah. Uh, The Ice Warriors, uh, the way they're portrayed in this is... They're not portrayed as villainous, which is nothing new, because obviously that goes back to the 70s with, like, the, uh, the Curse of Paladin. And I do like that there is a race in Doctor Who that's actually very diverse in their goals and outlook, much like humans are. But with all that said... There's something off about the way they're written in this. They have this 
obsessive code of honor that they abide by. And I'm just like, where does this come from? Like, is this a book thing? Because I don't recall this being a thing in the TV show. There were lizard people obsessed with honor in the classic series, but that was the Draconians. And I feel like we should have a, there should be a discussion about the stereotype of honor and how it relates to Orientalism. But yeah, I do. After I am traumatized enough by Land of the Dead before talking about uncomfortable racial subjects, so I'm not even gonna go there with this one. We will have to go there if we do this long enough that we get to paper cuts. But uh, <laughs> yeah, at least paper cuts, have, to my understanding, has some pretty fun ideas among all its Orientalism. This doesn't. I'm gonna say this: paper cuts is hugely problematic in a lot of ways, way more so than this. I would listen to it in a heartbeat over listening to this. Okay, I am going to say, I, I know we're not going to, we didn't want to get into this, but I am going to go on a little rant here. And it's about okay. warrior races in fiction and how they are not really a thing. They are based off of very colonialist ideas about indigenous people and how they are warriors, even when there's even when these indigenous people don't really have anyone to fight. This is not the only place in Doctor Who that we see this. Leela is very much entrenched in this stereotype, but she's played by Louise Jameson and is able to rise above it. And as much as I like the Ice Warriors as a concept, I think I think it's delightful that the Martians in Doctor Who are this. There's something so specific. I and I like that they're so morally gray. The fact that they're old warriors really bugs me. <laughs> well, they're not. Well, yes and no. It's just the ones that we see are. Yeah, except... Because they're the ones who, for, are, the go who are going to be the threat. Like, Ice Warriors isn't really the name of their species. That was just, like, a nickname given to them in their first episode by humans. That's one thing in the story, not to, to actually talk about the story for a bit, that I did kind of like, where someone, where the doctor does call one of the, call them Ice Warriors, and one of them takes offense to it. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, the group in this are soldiery to some extent, and from what little we know of the Ice Warrior history, like, there is kind of a prequel to them called Lords of the Red Planet, but that doesn't, it deliberately obfuscates how much of it actually leads into the formation of the Ice, of the Ice Warriors, like, as a species and culture. And we also see some more of them in Judgment of Iskar, which is a main range release we may get round to in 2025. Yeah. Yes. And um, that shows what Mars was like before the Red Dawn in this. Yeah, the, the Red Dawn, the title, that's actually a plot twist. <laughs> yeah, there's some surprising lore in the Big yeah, Finish Ice Warrior stories. That I, I didn't notice that. Before, before the Red Dawn, the Ice Warriors were basically like any other society. Like, they had their entertainment stuff to do, went shopping, stuff like that. There is a soldiery, but they don't play any more a prominent role in the society as they would, like, in any other, per se. It's just that those happen to be the ones that people who are in conflict with them are obviously going to come up against. My issue is just that, in a lot of these stories, it creates this impression that they're all like this, which doesn't make any sense, especially... Since there's, even though it's never outright said, there's definitely an implication, at least in the classic series, that they never really came off planet, at least to me, that was the impression I got. So who are they, like, warriors fighting against? In the new series, uh, the 11th Doctor does say that, that they ex expanded off-world and off-Mars. And, I mean, there's a lot of other stuff to get in there. But, yeah. 
I mean, they were probably fighting each other. Yeah, I guess so. We do that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you're talking about you're talking about Leela as like coming from a warrior culture. I don't know how accurate that is for a lot of reasons. Like, there are problematic elements to Leela's character, but if I'm I'm going I was going to use the Thermian argument. I know it's bad, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm a pedant. Um, Leela wasn't necessarily from a warrior culture. It's more that she herself was a trained warrior. It's like that was the role she was expected to fill in society. And her culture did have enemies. Like they were the Tesh. So it's like they were, they did like have people that they were fighting. Hell, everything was like set up. So that was how it was going to work. So I'm saying it, it does make, it does make sense in universe. But your point about warrior cultures in science fiction is still a valid Yes, one. and even if, like, if you look at things carefully, like you've just done with Leela, you can see how that's not really the case, how I've just painted things. But if you're just listening to any random release, that's not going to come across, And so, which is kind of why I bring this up. And Doctor Who is not the only sci-fi series that has done this. I mean, Star Trek and the Klingons are still doing this. They've just mm. gotten rid of a lot of the racial shit that it started with, which, funnily enough, was also very Orientalist. Yes. <laughs> I feel we've been... We, I think we just went on, like, five minutes without ever talking about this actual release that we're meant to be talking I about. I want to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to talk about it. So, uh, this is... Um, this is the Empress of Mars, but more boring. Yeah. Yeah, there's not... It's like, r- remove, remove the uh, fun aesthetic of Victorian soldiers in space, uh, double the runtime, uh, make the chief ice warrior way more reasonable and less hammy, and then have the entire plot driven by bastard Stephen Fuel, who is one of those villains who isn't threatening, but is also not hammy either, so he's just kind of annoying, that isn't necessarily a bad thing, but if you're going to have a character who's just kind of annoying, have this much screen time, it, it's just exhausting. And while we're on the subject of exhausting, I said I liked the performance that Matthew Brenner gives as the chief ice warrior. But, oh God, by the time he gets like to his 27th speech about honor, like I just wanted him to kill someone. Like, please, like, anything. If, if I have to hear this guy talk about honor one more fucking time. <laughs> like, yeah. Not fun. Uh, Not fun. Yeah. It's like he talks about honor more time than in, um, than in a movie made in America about China. <laughs> like, it's like, this is Mulan, but... Without literally everything that makes Mulan enjoyable. I don't know, it's been years since I saw that. <laughs> There's certain, I'm sure that someone who's not us will have a lot of thoughts about like the race politics and all sorts of other representation stuff, but it's still a damn good movie. So, I mean, better than the remake. So, but that's. A, I have not seen the remake. I've heard nothing but bad things, and I'm just going to go off of that. But we're still, we're still talking about. We just spent so much time in this episode, talking about everything except for the release, because there is nothing to talk about. Even when we, when you bring up something to, about it, we just go off on a tangent. <laughs> oh, I'm going to try and go back to it. Um, Robert Jezik, who I mentioned is in this, uh, he does nothing for most of it, but there is one bit. It's revealed that he was the one who sabotaged the communication sy- systems on their ship, because there is this weird subclause in a thing called the Brookings Report, 
which means that if humans are com come into contact with alien life, they're to immediately cut off all communications because humans are not ready to meet aliens. And now this revelation has fuck all to do with the plot. It's real, though. It's a real thing. The, the Brookings Report is real. I don't know if that specific clause is in it. It is. The Brookings Report is a real thing. I don't know if the stuff about alien life is a real thing. I googled it when it came up because I... It sounded too dull to not be real. I googled it too, but I just got linked to the TARDIS wiki, so... Yeah. Hang on. Brookings Report, it, I just googled it and it comes up right up on Wikipedia. Hang on. Okay, so this is kind of based on a real thing, but again, it has so little to do with the actual story. But Carrick, it's realism. It's realism. We're realistic. It means we're good, right? I guess it... I guess it has something to do with the theme. Like, there is this kind of undercurrent in this about the unreadiness of humanity. But um, I'm not sure that's needed, because there's already plenty of conflict going on in here. Like, Stephen Fuel in this, he's he's an evil capitalist arms dealer, and he's also a bastard. So, and he wants to, like, use Martian technology to make money. Him and his dad, uncle, I don't know, I'm not clear how he's related to the guy who's funding this I thing. Think it was we dad. never meet the guy who's we never meet the guy who's funding this thing, by the way. Like he's this he's like the big bad, but when the guy behind evil Jason Kane, but he never turns up. Uh, there's no indication of what's going to happen to him. It's kind of bizarre, given how little there is in the story, that they couldn't even, like, have one line explaining that, I don't know, Georgia Moffat's going to make sure he gets arrested, or Robert Jezik's going to do it, or something. I thought Georgia Moffat just stuck around on Mars, because she was part yeah, of Yeah, like, something. to hang around with her people, it's like, she was made partly from Martian DNA, so she can, like, instinctively operate their technology. That's, uh, that's not how DNA works, but... I w I, normally I wouldn't have complained about stuff like that because this is Doctor Who, but since this episode so clearly wants to have some element of realism, I'm going to call it out for that. Yeah, and just... It, I don't like I don't like the implications of that. Just about, like, race politics and things. Um, yeah. Is there anything else to talk about? We've said literally everything. I mean, the moment when we learn what the titular Red Dawn actually is and what it means for Zal is, I guess, kind of neat. I genuinely stopped paying attention is, by that point. Uh, it's when he like he sacrifices himself to stop evil Stephen Fuel. Oh, I got that much. Then gets, and then he gets blown up by a torpedo. Yay! Like, or something. I mean, the, like, um, this story is way better structured than Genocide Machine. It's like the cliffhangers are solid, like in like a box sticking kind of way. You introduce the Ice Warriors, you've got Sonic Torpedo, and you've got evil Stephen Fuel pulling the trigger on a Sonic gun. Although then it turns out he was just bluffing, so it's like, okay, that's a weak resolution. Yeah. Um, what else? Um, You're scrambling. I, I like that this is... I like that this is called Red Dawn, which is a reference to a movie which is anti-communist propaganda, but the actual villains in this are capitalists. That's a little clever, I guess that's I guess. kind of fun. <sighs> yeah, I think we've demonstrated our opinion over this enough by how little we had to say about it. 
The one last thing I want to say is that now that we've talked about how ice warriors aren't all warriors like the species, I just want there to be a story where we see one in just regular clothing. <laughs> Which has nothing to do with the story. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I was, I genuinely, like, I do care about this podcast and I do take decent notes, but I just could not be asked with this. It was so boring. I like Justin Richards, but this is so bad. I hated it so much. I hated this more than anything else so far. It was so painful. I'm glad it was short, but still. Justin Richards is what I call a reliable writer. He understands good concepts like structure and pacing, and I think that's why I find this more bearable than the genocide machine, because he does understand the basic exercises of how to escalate within a four-part format. But the actual content of the story is just so lacking. I mean, he does mention that he like he was instructed to split Perry off from the Doctor so she could have a stronger role in the story, which I guess kind of happens. It is very hilarious how she immediately realizes that Stephen Fuel is the bad guy. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea was like split the companion off from the Doctor, give her a stronger role. That's that's nothing new. That is a tried and true plot formula, but. Why not? I guess it works. It's nice to hear her hanging about with Georgia Moffat for a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I have just... Yeah. Uh, we're going to wrap this up. If you want a decent Ice Warrior story from Big Finish, then I don't know. Listen to Dance of the Dead. <laughs> I actually can't think of many Ice Warrior stories that I really like. I really like Even Empress the... of I... Mars, and I do like all all but one of their TV appearances. Well, I'm kind of so-so on the original Ice Warrior story, but I do like the Seeds of Doom. Or uh, Seeds of Death, excuse me. We're talking about other stuff again. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Final thoughts, I guess. Uh, this is what I call competent but boring. Like, most of the execution is about as solid as it can be, but the actual content is just so tedious that there's really nothing to be gained here. Next time, the Spectre of Elanian Moor. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to us ramble about everything else except for the release this week. If you want to find us, you can find our Twitter at RaceWho. My Twitter is at DManity. Carrick's is at Carrick of the Ord. Uh, still haven't set up the email address because you're recording these, this episode in the last back-to-back. But by the time you hear the next one, it should be set up. And also, I'm going to be looking into setting up a new place to host the podcast. Bye!